I want to do everybody wants some, but God's Not Dead 2 Oh, fuck coming. you. Stop. God, get them. <laughs> <laughs> you sold that really straight to me. Right? <laughs> I, I tried hard on that one. I was, I was almost bust, busting out laughing. God's Not Dead 2. <laughs> the sequel. <laughs> you fucking God is still not dead. God is still I'm not telling you, they squandered dead. opportunities to name that sequel. <laughs> God's not dead too. Not deader. <laughs> God's undead. <laughs> God's undead. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Talking During the Movie, the show where two jackoffs talk about new movies and movie news. I am James. And I am Mike. And this is episode 39, Mike and James, Giant Monsters All Out Attack. Guess what we're reviewing this week. <laughs> That's a real fucking movie, by the way. Yeah, it is. Uh, in fact, it's better because the original's got Godzilla, Mothra, and King Ghidorah in the title. Um, the trifecta. The trifecta. Man, if if I if if there's ever a new Toho Godzilla movie coming out, uh, we are gonna have a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, we are. That'll be so cool. Um, it'll also never happen, but hey, you know. I think it's been like since I think it's been 2004 was the last one, right? Um, looks like it must be not yeah. not counting the American version, obviously. <laughs> the two two thousand, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. The uh, no two thousand was the Japanese. The, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the Gareth, I'm talking about the Gareth Edwards one. Yeah, yeah, Gareth Edwards one. Okay, yeah. So, uh, Gareth Edwards, he's gonna come up on this show. Oh, he sure is. <laughs> uh, we told everyone that on the recording. Well, fuck, we didn't tell him that. I should back up. Okay, okay so let's start from square one. Uh, right now, it, it looks to online subscribers that we didn't, in fact, do a show last week, which would seem pretty baffling because what came out last week was, uh, of course, the incredibly successful and critically acclaimed Disney film Zootopia. Um, well, turns out we did actually do this episode. We both saw it, recorded our thoughts. Um, but uh, it looks like we now have a continuing legacy of lost episodes on our hands. This is now number two uh, of our shows where the recording uh, was just completely gone, uh, which is particularly baffling because, uh, James, you said it was showing that it was recording all throughout the episode yep. and uh you know without a single we even tested many times beforehand uh to make sure it was working properly everything seemed like it was functional and then it just didn't save well so it did it did save it saved a file that was a recording on march 7th um and i was like okay here's the file let's open an audacity all i got in audacity was 0.34 seconds of silence. Yeah. Can't explain it. Uh, it. I got really pissed off, and now I'm also backup recording this on uh, through Audacity, which is kind of, it's kind of weird because I'm hearing my own voice after me, which is annoying, but I'll get over it. Yeah, um, we're going through a brief spell of kind of technical trial and error, so um, we're 99% sure that we're not talking to no one here and that this episode will be heard. Um but it may be uh, another week uh, until we maybe get like a full t- long-term alternative recording software. 
Uh, yeah, uh, so we're still a little we're still a little dodgy right now, and we are going to. I, I should stop saying we. This is all James. James is doing all this. I'm being lazy and not doing anything uh, because he does this on his end, and he deserves mad respect and props. So thank mad you, mad props to James. That's my favorite segment. We should make that up. Anyways, last week what we said that didn't actually make it to air or to publish, I suppose, was that we would be reviewing Ten Cloverfield Lane, and then. We had the idea, third segment, perfect, let's go back and review the old Cloverfield. Um, turns out that that's not really the best idea. No. Uh, for multiple reasons, just in structure of a show, we you know we have third segments that we do retrospectives on uh, existing already, uh, Forgotten Favorite, and on the contrary, it wouldn't really, it would really fall into neither of those categories. And second of all, we don't want to set a precedent where we're reviewing every predecessing movie in a franchise that goes no. forward you know no. like if we review captain america civil war do we have to feel the captain america movies no absolutely not i think the idea was is, is to do something that is thematically relevant to the movie we're doing this week um well no whatever week it is next week for example uh jeff nichols midnight special is coming out uh which appears to even just visually bear loss a lot of relation to his previous film take shelter uh which is also kind of underseen so i think we're going to try and work that into a forgotten favorite episode um or a forgotten favorite segment i should say but uh also though with cloverfield i thought uh, so I went into 10 Cloverfield Lane completely blind. I really had only seen the one trailer that came out, which didn't tell me much. But based off the title alone, I thought that – I don't want to spoil too much now, but I just – I thought it would have more to do with the original Cloverfield, Uh, which it turns out it it, uh, – I was challenged on that point, let's just say. Um, So uh, James texted me uh, after he had seen it. And suggested that we switch our third segment this week to um, a film that is actually, uh, particularly for James, a forgotten favorite, uh, which is Gareth Edwards' uh, directorial debut, I believe, uh, which is called Monsters, um, the only film he directed before the 2014 Godzilla. Yeah, I believe it was his directorial debut, although I think, if memory serves correctly, he might have done a short film um, before Monsters, but... Yeah. Oh no, he did a TV film. That's what it is. Okay, gotcha. So he did a TV film before that, and and a short film. Okay, I was right on both accounts. Woo. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I think that'll be interesting uh, to talk about. Uh, that's going to be mainly. Uh, James introduced me to monsters in the first place. Uh, we watched it first a few years ago. Um, I thought it was interesting, uh, and. I think uh, in retrospect now, it's kind of it'll be interesting to talk about in relation with Ten Cloverfield Lane, uh, and it does certainly have I think more in common with it, at least in terms of certain themes and I would say mostly dramatic structure and how yeah. it deals with monsters. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so it's it's not as it's not the most obvious tie-in, but I think it's definitely relevant. And probably uh, much more relevant than the original. Actually, yeah, certainly more relevant than the original Cloverfield. Uh, so, yeah, change of plan that no one really knew was a change of plan because uh, the initial plan was not, in fact, posted. Yeah, and Gareth Edwards is a name you're going to hear a lot going forward because um, Gareth Edwards has been pegged to direct Star Wars Rogue One, which is coming out later this year, from what I understand. 
and then he's going to direct the Godzilla sequel and possibly have producing ties with Godzilla vs. King Kong. Yeah. Um, so you're going to hear him a lot, especially from Star Wars nerds, uh, for better or for worse. We'll, we'll find out. <laughs> I'm about to prove how bad my memory is. Was Rogue One a Star Wars film that, uh, uh, oh my god, Fantastic Four director was originally attached to? Trank? Trank, yeah, Josh Trank. Oh, man. Or was that a, or was that a different anthology film? I, I couldn't make heads or tails of that, so... Oh, okay. Uh, well, great. Then I guess we... I'm not the only one with shit memory. By the way, you guys missed a great show last week, and before we get too into this episode, I just want to say very quickly that our uh, estimation of Zootopia was positive on both fronts. Um, maybe a little bit more positive in my, in my bank. Uh, I really liked how it uh, approached... Social issues, it wove into the story without making it too uh, clumsy. It was uh, the, the the ways that it made it a more realistic and, and uh, uh, even-handed approach to, uh, you know, racism and prejudice and bigotry was very... Uh, it was it was a nice change of pace, especially from a lot of the heavy-handed message films that come out. Um, I had and, some uh, semantic problems with the movie, but they were nitpicks. At, yeah, you know, yeah, you guys missed a long... Like maybe a ten minute argument about whether the demographics of Zootopia were actually realistic. Yeah, it was uh, kind of bullshit. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, you know, it, it was. It, it, but honestly, it just reminded me of the uh, old arguments Siskel and Ebert would have. I, I kind of stand behind that argument. No, I, and after you like gave your spiel on it, I was like, okay, I'm gonna keep this in. I was mostly, I was gonna heavily edit around it. Yeah, I, I, I think it's okay to, tr- I think it would have been okay to trim some of it, but I think the nature of the conversation itself was just the minutiae that make some reviews so dumb and interesting to listen to, so I, I would stand behind that particular piece of podcasting. Uh, Talking during the movie, dumb and interesting. Dumb and interesting. Two Jack, I was being dumb and interesting. Hopefully. Yeah, no, I feel like we should have started off this episode with, it was a great show last week, and it's going to be a great show this week. Oh my god. <laughs> we missed an opportunity. Well, you could just take that audio bit and put it at the front of the... <laughs> for your introduction. Oh, I need to be real, man. I need to be real. It was a great show last week. We also had a pretty in-depth conversation about uh, the animation field with uh, Disney uh, Animation Studios competing with Pixar for awards in the same year. Which... And everyone else competing with both of those companies for, for any kind of recognition. For sheer relevance. That's what they're yep. competing. They yep. want some spotlight, yeah. Yep. Um, I think my basic conclusion on that was that uh, the, the playing field, I think, in animation is becoming more leveled. Um, we're getting very interesting creative animation from all over the place now. Uh, it's no longer, uh, it, despite that, the, despite the fact that the Academy Awards are still going the way they are going, um, I think it's no longer necessarily a no-brainer that a Disney or Pixar movie is going to be the best animated film of the year, um, of any year. So, um, it's kind of exciting uh, on the one hand, uh, but also kind of an uphill battle to get other. I mean, good luck getting anomalies in Academy Award is what I'm saying. Uh, yeah. <laughs> For fucking sure, that would be headline grabbing to say the least. Oh my god, I would have, I would have eaten my ballot. I would, I would have, <laughs> I would have eaten. I just stuffed it in my mouth, like, right at the Oscar party. Just fuck it, right there in front of everybody. I ate my Oscar ballot for you. <laughs> it's a uh... wait. What's that from? I was South Park. He ate his underwear. Oh, that's right. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, that's right. I, uh, it also kind of reminded me there was a. I'm sorry, this is totally irrelevant, but uh, we're we're already down that path. Oh, I know. Well, we were recapping. Um, True. But uh, you know, the director of Werner Herzog, uh, he made a deal with Errol Morris, the documentarian, uh, that he would never get the movie Gates of Heaven made, uh, which is uh, Morris's first feature about a pet cemetery. Um, and uh, he eventually did get it made. That was one of Roger Ebert's favorite films. Um, and the bet was that if he did get it made, Werner Herzog would eat his shoe. Um, and he, in fact, did eat his shoe. And you can look up. There is a film directed by Errol Morris, I believe, called Werner Herzog Eats His Shoe. How the fuck did he eat his shoe? That can't be good. <laughs> I'm telling you, it exists. Please look. Oh, sorry. Les Blank directed it. Another okay. famous documentarian. Uh, yeah, it's... Uh, it's 22 minutes long, and it's well, it depicts Werner Herzog eating his shoe. Yeah. Well, sometimes you get into a weird underbelly of cinema. It's very, very interesting. <laughs> well, we're gonna we're, be in the like. There. Well, we're not gonna be going to the underbelly of cinema because we're going right to the mainstream. Uh huh. The most mainstream, the mainest of the streams. Uh, I don't think you can get more mainstream than Marvel. At this no, point, no. no more mainstream than superhero movies on a broader scale, anyway. Um, and it's Captain America: Civil War. New trailer debuted, and the worst kept secret in Hollywood was confirmed, and that's that Spider-Man, Tom Holland's Spider-Man, uh, is going to appear, make his first appearance in Captain America: Civil War. <gasps> what? Whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, what? As a as an aside, earlier when I was trying to tell uh, Mitchell who's playing the new Spider-Man, uh, and I said Tom Hooper. Oh my god! <laughs> the director of the King's Speech <laughs> and the Danish girl. <laughs> that horse face motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. God damn. Low blow. No, I don't care. <laughs> I know, but like, I feel like if I ever ever meet these people. I will, I mean, not like they're listening to this anyway, but, oh man, I'm being a dick to much more successful people than myself. Um, That's weird, I just got an email from Tom Hooper that says, I really liked the last episode of your show. Oh my god. (laughs) We gotta burn the tapes. (laughs) Delete the recording right now! Delete the recording, abort podcast. (laughs) Bye everyone, it was a great podcast. (laughs) Bye. Bye forever. Um, So... We're what, what was it? Oh my god! Spider-Man, Tom Holland, right? Um, so, first of all, let me just say that I am happy that we're finally okay. Look, because apparently Spider-Man is just one of those properties where no one can ever settle on a a single franchise for it. Every, apparently, everyone just keeps fucking it up. Uh, Sam Raimi disappointed with Spider-Man three, uh, which I think is unfair because there are some brilliant moments in Spider-Man three that. I, I still think Sam Raimi is the most capable filmmaker that's ever handled a Spider-Man film. Um, you can take me, you, you can take me on that however you want. I will defend it. Um, no, that's then, perfectly fair. I don't even know the name of the director of Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, oh, uh, Five Hundred Days of Summer. Mark Webb. Mark Webb. Oh, uh, he has uh, the most Webb. fitting. He has the most fitting name yeah, for true. Spider-Man director. Um, but uh, yeah, that uh, severely disappointed with. The Amazing Spider-Man 2, which uh, we still need to get to a commentary track on at some point. I really, really look forward to that. Um, I just suffice it to say it's garbage. Oh, it's so it's such, such trash. But um, we 
it just seems like the minute there is a single Spider-Man movie flop, they abort franchise and then the property passes on to, well, not to someone else, but they then try to reboot it or reincorporate it. I'm happy to say that this time, and we've known this, but we will not, it's not a fucking origin story. It's, it's not anything like that. And in fact, we're actually getting Spider-Man in the middle of one of his most important uh, plots in the comics, which is during the civil war conflict, uh, which in which Tony Stark and uh, Steve Rogers spearhead two different uh, factions, essentially of superheroes uh, that can't, uh, that are split on whether or not to register their identities with the United States government for the sake of national security. That's going to be, I'm really excited for civil war. Uh, Me too. Uh, you know, Captain America Winter Soldier is probably the best MCU movie um, thus far, and I don't think that's too outlandish. Um, no, I, w- I would probably say Guardians for me, but... Uh, yeah, that's true. I, I that's also true. Know, I also understand Winter Soldier, and I think that's actually probably a more popular opinion. Well, I don't know. I, th- I would think Guardians... Because it's a more Guardian, Guardians is more of a Guardians is more of a crowd pleaser, I'd say. But. Yeah, that's and that's what I'm that's what I'm really getting at. Um, so I'm really excited for it, and the reveal of Spider Man was pretty cool. And was the, de- <laughs> the trailer? It just it's just so depressing. I hate that. I I hate that they're fighting. I want them to stop. But but it was pretty epic though. It led up to a very interesting conflict. It hurts. It hurts to see these. Characters you can tell. I, I, first of all, kudos to Robert Downey Jr. and uh, uh, oh my god, oh my, uh, as in Steve, oh, Chris Evans. Oh my Chris god, yeah. it took me forever. Uh, kudos to Robert Downey Jr. and Chris Evans for their acting jobs in this because they are they have to simultaneously play enemies who clearly love each other. Like it's it's <laughs> it's 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 brilliant acting. I was very very happy by it. Uh, happy about it, I should say. Um, but fuck it, man. That's not what people are talking about. We're talking about what we're talking about the reveal of Spider-Man. Spidey. Um, so he's um, called Underoos, hilariously, by uh, Tony Stark. So that's that's a good addition. That's that's such a good name. That's a very Tony Stark nickname. I love it. Um. So okay. So I'm a bit of a Spider-Man fan. I fucking love him. He's I've, like he's he was the first superhero I actually read the comics of. Um, and I followed all the movies religiously. I really, he's, he's, uh, Spider-Man's personally my favorite superhero. Um, cool. And, uh, that's I, a sexy choice. I'm just going to say that's sexy. My favorite superhero is Batman, but like everyone's favorite superhero is Batman. Yeah. I was like, Batman's like the default. Like, of course, Batman's the fucking coolest superhero by far. He's great. Um, he's got the best movies, he's got the best comics. I mean, you can't. You can't really hold a candle to him, but something about Spider-Man just seems it's so much, not seems it is more approachable to me. It's just such a relatable character, um, and kind of at a point when that wasn't super commonplace in comic books, where you you have such a vulnerable everyday person being a superhero, and also a superhero who's so vilified by the public he's trying to save. So I always found that really interesting. Um, so I, yeah. So so to me, Spider-Man's representation in film is important, um, and I, I have no doubts that Tom Holland will do a fantastic job, and that the Marvel Cinematic Universe will serve him well. So unfortunately, though, all I can really comment on in this trailer is the costume, which is interesting. So here's the thing: Amazing Spider-Man two, for everything that was bad with it, 
Oh, it got one thing very, very one right. One thing very right, and that was the costume. I was also going to mention that I kind of wish just Andrew Garfield got to keep his role. I did, too, because we all love – I mean, we loved Andrew Garfield. It was like – I don't think we ever had a complaint about him or, or Emma Stone, really, in the entire series. Um, no, Andrew Garfield was like the saving grace of that movie, and their, his chemistry with Emma Stone in number two was the only thing that made that movie watchable. Yeah. Um, so uh, – yeah, I would have been happy to have him return, although it wouldn't really make much sense uh, in terms of continuity. Um, but, um, but yes, the, the one thing I certainly got right about number two, like you said, was the costume. They incorporated a kind of like the look from Ultimate Spider-Man in the comic books. Like it, it's a, it's got the you know, it, it, there's nothing ultra modern or tacky about it, but it's mm-hmm. it's kind of got this like you know elegance got the big eyes and kind of a like a very stylized spider it was cool it just looked awesome it was like it was literally like the spider-man from the comics uh you know perfectly realized in live action that was the first this kind of weird like deadpool thing going on with his with his eyes especially i don't oh are you talking about the new one yeah the new one yeah so so here's the thing so so with the original like the sam raimi spider-mans it was it was okay I wasn't a huge fan of it. Um, I think a lot of people hated it. I, I think it was serviceable. It didn't really look that practical. I never, cer- I certainly never believed that a teenager could whip that up. But, I mean, you know, whatever. I can overlook that. It's whatever. Um, it was fine. I didn't really love it. Um, I hated the costume from The Amazing Spider-Man. Really hated it. To me, that was just like every single marketing exec coming up and going like, okay, so we got to make take this Spider-Man costume, but we got to make it like all new Coke. You know, this is a new generation. <laughs> And they gotta love it. We gotta spruce it up. The web's gotta be all abstract, cool, and like the blues gotta be all like you know, and cool. <laughs> you know, it gotta be all patchy and and cool, and that the eyes are all refl- you know, it just it just looked like someone trying to revamp an old logo that to, to make it appeal to the hip, cool generation, and, and it was bullshit. Um, so Mason Spider-Man Two finally nailed it. Um, with this new one, it's like. They're going for a very, very retro look. Um, which That's is the like, best way I can describe it, yeah. I, I mean, the thing... Here's here's my problem with it. If you look up like the really old, cheesy Spider-Man live-action TV series from the late 70s, it's kind of hard not to think about that. when It's, it's not nearly that bad, um, but just kind of something about, like the nature of that costume and like the sm- like the weirdly shaped i mean the, the eyes just don't really look right and the uh, the the textiles very clothy it doesn't really feel like tech you know it, it doesn't feel like it's layered at all i don't know it looks kind of cheap and old and i i not admittedly not a huge fan about it however it does the the shit with the eyes moving up and down that does kind of make sense because in the comics uh tony stark actually designs uh, i think spider-man's costume for at least part of the civil war storyline so it does make sense it is explained um but yeah i don't i don't know it was kind of weird i didn't really expect that kind of a look to it and i know i've been talking about this for like five minutes now but it is important to me so, yeah, that, it, it was interesting. It was interesting. Yeah, that's totally fair. 
it, it didn't ruin it. I just I not I I wish they'd just gone with the look from Amazing Spider-Man two. Um, fuck, I wish they went with the Spider-Man from Amazing Spider-Man two. But I'm more than happy. I'm more than excited to give Tom Holland and this new Spider-Man and this new costume a chance. So. Yeah, I am too. And the one thing I really will say about Tom Holland is that it's cool that he's only 19. Like his, yeah, they're actually casting to age this time. Yeah, and that's the one thing that Andrew Garfield is going to stop being able to pull off in a hurry. So, Yeah, I mean, look if you look at pictures of Tom Holland, he still looks like he's like 15 years old. <laughs> yeah. It looks like, which is actually kind of weird because Civil War, actually Andrew Garfield would have been more acceptable as... Spider-Man in this movie because in the comics at this point, of course, he's a fucking grown ass man. He's not a teenager in high school anymore, um, and uh, you know you can have an older looking Spider-Man. That's fine. Um, Andrew Garfield was actually playing him as a teenager in high school, <laughs> so um, which seriously he would be the most seriously at any high school. Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker would just be the coolest fucking kid ever. <laughs> like I don't, yeah, he's so. Yeah, this is probably a more realistic uh, and true to the comics approach to Peter Parker, but uh, someone who's actually a nerd, <laughs> someone who's actually kind of dweeby looking, um, and yeah, I don't know. I I'm I'm excited to see where they go with it. I I hope they make him. I mean, if they're taking notes from Deadpool, I hope they really up the smart ass factor of Spider Man because that's something I don't think. I mean, Andrew Garfield did a much better job than Tobey Maguire in that regard, but I never really feel like either of those films fully took advantage of how much of a wise-cracking asshole Spider-Man was supposed to be when he had the costume on, which is kind of part of his whole appeal, you know? It's almost like he's this, you know, meek... I mean, he he had really not a great sense of humor in his personal life, and it's almost like the the suit acted as this catalyst to just bring out every single smart-aleck piece-of-shit thing he's ever wanted to say <laughs> and... uh and amplify it tenfold. So yeah, I, I kind of hope they really play up that aspect of it, but we'll see. I, there's not enough info out right now. I'm just totally speculating and nerding out about the costume, but, um, it's just cause I care and I'm really interested and excited. Um, civil war. I'll, I'll be there front row seat, man. Yeah. Um, I think that's all we really have to say about it. And that's actually all our news we had because it was an exciting week, two weeks anyway. Yeah. We didn't um, even have news on our second last episode, by the way. No, I mean, honestly, the only other piece of news that I found was that I think Civil War is going to be two and a half hours. It's going to be actually, almost uh, two and a half hours. It's going to be like six minutes shorter than Batman vs. Superman, which is two and a half hours. Why are these two and a half hours? <laughs> they, oh, God. But yeah, so uh, that's about I mean, uh, They're all focused on Batman vs. Batman Superman and Civil War at this point, so um, that's all we got. Sorry. Yeah, except next week we're going to go, like, super indie, um, reviewing Take Shelter and Midnight Special, so that's going to be fun. Hey, Jeff Nichols uh, deserves to be talked about, and I don't think we've really brought him up on the show at all, so I'm I'm more than excited. Jeff Nichols? I want to hear about Batman. Uh, and yeah, we'll be doing Batman v Superman the week after that, so, you know, just, 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 just chill. You're... Chill your chill your gla- nerd glasses, man. We'll be there. We'll be okay. It'll be fine. Everything will be fine. Just wipe them off. In your little glasses cloth. Okay, I'm being mean now. Um, yeah. Jesus. <laughs> Let's, go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go to Clover 
Cloverfield. Cloverfield, 10 Cloverfield Lane. Um, no, I mean, let's go to, like, the Cloverfield area. Let's just travel there. Okay. I don't, I'm not really entirely clear on where that is. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Is it New York? Because it's not New York. Uh, it's not New York, and apparently it's not Louisiana. Uh, I don't... They're very inconsistent. Yeah, see, actually, because I watched this movie thinking it was, like, in the Cloverfield universe, which I have found out is not the case, uh... I was thinking she was in a, a like a New York suburb <laughs> the whole time. Yeah, but they were constantly ma- – so uh, this is a conversation that's to take place later. But they were constantly referencing Louisiana, and then, of course, there's a train ticket that is shown at one point that definitely indicates Louisiana. Um, so furthering evidence that this movie is not actually in the universe of the original Cloverfield. So in case anyone doesn't remember, uh, the original Cloverfield – well, the movie called Cloverfield. Uh, technically, I guess it's untitled, and the code name is Cloverfield because it's government found footage. Ooh. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it came out in 2009, produced by J.J. Abrams, directed by Matt Reeves. Um, it had one of the most legendarily awesome marketing campaigns of all time behind it. Um, just seriously, one of the most uh, attention grabbing, uh, you know, suspense inducing. Uh, trailer and viral marketing campaign I've ever seen in my life, and it just made me want to know what the fuck is this thing? All you don't you didn't really see anything from the trailer except a the head of the Statue of Liberty being severed and thrown across New York City by some unseen monster, and it just everyone was excited, and we you know I, I think everyone I knew at that time went to go see that movie, and. You know, we sat there, we suffered through the shaky cam and the, the, you know, the found footage aesthetic. And at the end of that movie, it was a monster. Just a pretty, pretty standard monster. That was about it. Um, it was a monster movie. Yep. It's a monster movie. And, uh, and I remember leaving that theater and walking around the mall that the multiplex was in and, uh, I think about 15 minutes later, I, I, I had really enjoyed the movie, but then about 15 minutes later, I had pretty much forgotten just about everything that I just experienced. And in fact, I even kind of forgot what the monster looked like because it was not a very memorable monster. And uh, that was about it for Cloverfield. Um, and I've chalked it up as one of the – as a perfect embodiment of what J.J. Abrams is. He didn't direct it, of course, but you know whether it's you know Lost – or Cloverfield, or Super 8. Something that has all the intrigue in the world going into it. Such a brilliant setup. Like, like the work of an insanely talented pitchman uh, with no follow-through. <laughs> Without any end goal, uh, or any, any, you know, any kind of sense of what the resolution's going to be, and how this story's going to get tied up. Um, and, I mean, luckily, I don't really have much to apply to... Uh, in that regard to Star Wars Force Awakens, that was, uh, you know, that was great. Or even really Star Trek. Um, but that's kind of been a constant thing uh, that's bugging me about J.J. Abrams. You know, I, I've never really been able to surmount that in a lot of his films and produced efforts. Um, so now fast forward eight years. Yeah, eight years. I'm bad at math. Yep. Um, and I see a trailer. Well, we, we we both see a trailer. Everyone sees a trailer uh, about with John Goodman humping a jukebox. Um, 
the original <laughs> version of I Think We're Alone Now playing, and then, uh, you know, people hanging out in a bunker, and horrific and ominous sounds coming from outside the bunker. And the, you know, it pans out, and the title of the film is revealed to be 10 Cloverfield Lane. And everyone loses their shit, including me. I had forgotten about this movie, <laughs> and I had no idea there was any talks of a sequel taking place. Uh, What's well, the thing too that you can't say Cloverfield like that's not a even a real thing. Like it's, it might be a place somewhere, but that is a thing because Cloverfield is a movie. So when the title was Ten Cloverfield Lane, yeah, everyone no immediately mis- knew the significance. Yeah, there's no misconstruing it. This is a follow-up to Cloverfield, and I was really excited because this actually looked, I mean, this looks so different. It looked like it had a completely, you know, new approach to this kind of material. Um, And it even had Damien Chazelle involved, who, of course, was the writer-director of Whiplash. Um, And I don't know, something something about it just kind of got me really excited, Um, tried and true to how brilliant of a marketing expert J.J. Abrams is. He was still on board as executive producer. Um, Or I think it actually is just producer. Um, and so I went in this movie almost completely blind. I knew nothing about it except the title, and I'd seen the trailer. Um, and I was completely surprised to find this has actually almost nothing to do with the original Cloverfield. <laughs> <laughs> no, and... You know, I like the way you're describing it, which is, I guess, the way the filmmakers are describing this. Sort of like this almost anthology-esque. Like, it's sort of similar in that it deals with not necessarily extraterrestrials, um, but otherworldly beings, almost. um, Which, I guess, is still not even an accurate way to describe it. Whatever. Um, Monsters attacking, maybe, is a better way to put it. What I would imagine... Where I imagine it comes from is this kind of, you know, amazing tales or some sort of like, you know, pulpy uh, science fiction anthology comic book series that I would maybe J.J. Abrams grew up on or something. Um, I to me, or or even just the Twilight Zone, like kind of yeah, you had mentioned like, that in the pre-Twilight, Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. Yeah, I I think that that's maybe what the intent is behind what is now becoming this franchise um, rather than continuing on the story of a pretty forgettable monster attacking people, which I think is honestly, once you get past the brilliant setup is a little, is, is kind of weak. And I am actually, I was just actually delighted to find that it went an entirely different direction. And I, actually, I even feel a little bad spoiling it for people now. Cause that was one of the, the big surprises about the movie. I've heard a lot of reviewers say, like as kind of a um, a warning to people that this is not a direct continuation of the original Cloverfield movie and that they should know that before going in. I actually think it's better to go in knowing nothing, even even not knowing that, uh, thinking that it is actually going to be a continuation because it was watching it unfold and kind of having your certainties about it stripped away was kind of part of the fun for me. Um well, I mean, let's so, just go into it. Uh, Ten Cloverfield yeah. Lane opens with uh, a woman whose both name, character name, and actual name—I forget. Um, wow, so we have we have the internet in front of us. I know, I know, but I was bad at my job. Um, I actually—it's weird. I remember her name from Scott Pilgrim versus the World, which was Ramona Flowers. Um, okay, uh, so her, her, her name just, is Mary Elizabeth Winstead. 
Her uh, character's name is Michelle, and she is packing up her stuff and leaving her fiancé for greener pastures somewhere else. Um, when she gets in a car accident and wakes up uh, shackled to a bed in a bunker uh, that is owned and operated by John Goodman, whose name is Howard, by the way. But, he, but he, I mean, really, come on. He, he, will, he will henceforth be referred to in this review as John Goodman. He will. Um, question right there at the start. Do, do you know, she gets a call on the drive from her fiancé, Ben. Do you know who Bra- voiced Ben? It's Bradley Cooper. I need to see that again, and here's why. <laughs> because too. I remember thinking, having the clear thought in my mind, that, oh my god, this actor sucks. <laughs> I was like, this is probably the worst acted phone call I've heard in a long time. I did too. And Bradley Cooper's a good actor. And he's also a good voice actor. Um, yes, because he voiced uh, Rocket, the... Rocket and Guardians of the Galaxy, yeah. and I still I still can't hear him in that role, to be honest. Um, which is Not a at all. Which is a testament to his ability. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't... <laughs> I don't know what happened there. Uh, minor point, minor point, but still, very I minor point. That was Brad- very Bradley Cooper sucks in Ten Cloverfield Lane. Spread the word. <laughs> he does. <laughs> that sucked. That's like three lines. Yeah, and they're not even fully audible. They're on a on an iPhone. Yeah, yeah. And and anyways, she wakes up in this. Uh, <laughs> In this uh, bunker, to also find uh, John Gallagher Jr., who is made famous by the newsroom, uh, is he's way playing Emmett, a, way good, a good-natured uh, Southern man who is very trusting of John Goodman, mm-hmm. who's actually worked with John Goodman for uh, a lot of his life, and uh, was actually struggling to get into the bunker before. What John Goodman says is a major attack on the United States. Uh, United States takes place um, that has rendered the, all of the air outside the bunker unbreathable to humans. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, Mary Elizabeth Winstead's character, uh, Michelle. That's way much easier to say. Um, and of course, Michelle does not believe him as a normal person wouldn't, especially because John Goodman's got a bit of. Jack Nicholson syndrome in this movie. <laughs> I don't. I don't quite know what you mean, but the character uh, I, of Howard, he has a. He's got clearly got a few screws loose, and when paired with something ominous as trapping someone inside of a bunker against their will, it turns into even more ominous. And I do love how they play with that throughout the movie of your perception of him from someone who's, you know, it goes from someone who's clearly. Uh, crazy and has ill intent to someone who's just sort of good natured and but a little weird, and then you know back and forth throughout the rest of it. So, yeah, what I meant by that Jack Nicholson comment was that the the way he delivers some of his lines, and I've I've heard nothing but praise for John Goodman's performance <laughs> in this movie, and you're not going to get a huge argument against that from me, but it's actually maybe even more in how it's directed, but. There are very clearly lines that John Goodman speaks, or the way he the way he delivers them, that if this person is not crazy, 
it makes no sense why he would say it that way. And when they kind of Fair. do a fake out, when they when they do a fake out where he, you know they they're trying oh. to make him, oh he's just a kindly man who's just assisting them and trying to be a good person, um, it you don't buy it. I, at least I didn't buy it, not entirely, because there's he's still clearly an unhinged human being. Um, which which definitely helps with the tension, but in terms of kind of faking me out, I was never kind of off my guard with regards to John Goodman. Um, no, it's true, and there there's a very obvious fake out when they're playing a. Oh my god! Yeah, it's probably one of my least favorite parts of the movie. Uh, yes, I've heard I've heard people just fall like love that scene, and I'm like, are, are you kidding me? <laughs> that was like I knew the setup and the ex- and the punchline before they happened. I know. I could call it. I'm like, no, this is... This is not... They're trying to be clever, and it's failing. And I, I think it it just kind of comes with... If you've seen movies enough, you know what, you know what's going to happen. Um, and it's, it's a pretty, even, it's pretty shitty fake-out. I don't even know how many movies you need to see. <laughs> actually, they're... Actually, the, 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 part of that sec, um, the part of that sequence right before that was actually more effective for me. The one where... Uh, it's uh, uh, the one where Emmett is uh, trying to get John Goodman to guess what a book title is, and he's giving him hints, and they're very obvious. Like he would, yep. you know, he'll he'll uh, say, you know, uh, synonym for tiny, and John Goodman says little, and then he'll point to, okay, great. And I was like, okay, now uh, second word, uh, Michelle is, and John Goodman cannot get the word women. He just he's saying girl, girl. And then he says, uh, like, no, she's, she's older. He's like, princess. And it's both funny and really unsettling <laughs> that he can't get the word. He can't use the word woman. And then you never know if his, like, if his comment is simply going to be passive aggressive or if it's going to <laughs> his comment afterwards, if it's going yeah. to evolve into something greater or if it's passive aggressiveness or yeah, you know that something greater. You don't know if it's going to be passive-aggressive or aggressive-aggressive. <laughs> yeah. um, it can be uh, either, and one could lead to the other very easily. John Goodman drives a lot of the tension in this movie, but I also want to draw attention to what I really liked about this movie, what I'll be able to like to probably take home for it. Is it's just some excellent suspense filmmaking here. Like I've heard it called Hitchcockian on more than one occasion. I would... Yeah, which is hyperbolic, I would say, if you want to compare quality, but just the basics of Hitchcock's ability to introduce an element and it visually and then play with that throughout a scene or even throughout the movie to build suspense with the audience is pretty fantastic. This movie plays to the audience a lot more than it plays to the characters, so uh, I have to praise that because that's what I'm really going to remember mostly. Yeah, I would say there's particular moments that are Hitchcockian. I probably wouldn't apply that to the film as a whole, particularly not the ending. Um, <laughs> but even that is like, not Hitchcockian at all. We will get no, there. no, we'll get there. Um, there's a moment where Michelle hides something in a vent, and uh, she has to seal it back up before John Goodman gets in the room. Uh, and it's ended kind of quickly. You don't really see, but she does manage to get it closed. Um, but then there's a shot. From just looking down, almost a bird's eye view, just above that's set just above the vents, and it looks down on John Gooden's character, and it cuts, um, it cuts away from that angle. But it's it's a clearly an unusual angle, and you know there's a reason they're showing you something there. And there's a few um, more typical coverage shots 
after it, but then it cuts back to the vent and something falls off of the vent. A screw gets loose um, and becomes apparent to John Goodman's character. And that kind of that kind of uh, lead in to a suspenseful moment is really great because you kind of know what's coming. Um, and I think they kind of expect you to be conditioned to understand what this shot means in cinematic language. Um, but they don't give you the payoff right away. And I think that that, I mean, that that's employed several times throughout the film. Those moments I think deserve the title Hitchcockian and they're, they're fantastic. Um, that's the kind of tactful, uh, really economic approach to suspense that I'm, I'm honestly surprised to see from a first-time director. This is uh, director's name is Dan Trachtenberg, and he is actually doesn't have a single feature film to his name before this. Um, he's got a few shorts and one episode of a TV series called Black Box TV, which I have never heard of before in my life. Um, <laughs> but uh, this is his first really uh, prominent piece of filmmaking, and I gotta say, it got me really excited to see what project he's going to work on in the future because just the just the craft of those uh, uh, many of the bunker scenes alone is enough for me to full-heartedly recommend the film oh yeah 100 percent. that's why you know i really wanted to bring it up and you know i don't want to take anything away from john goodman's character there was a lot of nuance to how he talk his cadence is just like hand motions and stuff like he'll clench his fists and like that's a really good really good addition to it that you know it's just like See, I I think it's great. I think uh, something like that is a, a wonderful detail until they give it a close up. Until oh like, yeah, they did do uh, that. I forget. Until they're like, until they're like, look at this, and that's kind of how I felt a lot. And maybe why I'm less positive, not on like I have to reiterate, not on John Goodman's performance, but the treatment of his character than a lot of other people have been because I feel like they took something that could have been. I'm I'm more unsettled by something when it's really like i cannot get a read on it where I, I don't know how to even approach trying to determine what where this character is coming from and john goat's character had moments like that like the the little women scene i mm-hmm. at least that part of it uh, was really effective for me um but then of course right even right after that right they have the most obvious you know i, I know what you're doing i can see you when you're asleep and just like <laughs> the delivery of that, Emmett kind of stumbling over words and freaking out, you know, the the whole part, like that shit is obvious audience manipulation. And so much of the other film is, uh, so much of the rest of the film is above that, that those moments kind of really stand out as, uh, you know, honestly not giving the audience enough credit. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I, 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 I like Howard's character in theory and in certain instances, but I really wish they would have been less, obvious about it there were there were i mean and the you know the jack nicholson comparison also comes in uh with the shining right where mm-hmm. when he goes bonkers in the shining spoiler alert sorry um you're just what? like uh, yeah what <laughs> you're just like of course yeah of course he does when was this guy not insane <laughs> yeah. when was this guy not going to take an axe to his family um which isn't to say john Goodman doesn't have some fucking holy shit moments in this movie um where i did not see it coming uh mm-hmm. particularly one uh one mm, one or two overreactions to certain revelations about characters well um, um it would now be a good time to just get into the ending portion because this is probably the most contentious of any review you're going to read sure um yeah that's that's fine i 
I mean, honestly, I would kind of be opposed to even people listening to this episode before they see the film. I, I, this is one of the few films I, I think is just – it benefits going in 100% spoiler-free, just completely. Like, have like see the trailer and know the title, and that's about it. Just Yeah, it does. I'm sorry if you're already listening. Having not seen this movie, we hope that you haven't, given the nature of this film. And um, Yeah, but we're going to get into, like, the spoiler <laughs> – yeah. Uh, because a lot of reviews are saying the same thing in that like oh this movie is really great until the until the ending portion of the movie because it, it takes a pretty stark turn from the suspenseful locked room drama uh that dominated for the first like 80 or so minutes yeah which i i have to say other than those moments of obviousness and and just kind of the the kind of fumbling over its tact i absolutely loved as a piece of film and this is like i mean this is like three quarters of the film if not yeah. more than that it's 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 the majority of it and um goddamn if it's not, it's just one of the most you know hyper tense pot boiler you know you know, piece of filmmaking I've seen in a while. Uh, so, and I kind of can see where the influence of someone like Damien Chazelle comes in. If in fact, uh, you know, he had as prominent a role in writing this as I think he did. Um, because the, the, the tension of some of those scenes was weirdly enough, um, reminiscent kind of, of whiplash. <laughs> it was reminiscent of whiplash, which I had a very strong visceral response to, even though that was about m- music I remember feeling exhausted after watching Whiplash. I, I just, I, my palms were sweating. Yeah, my palms were. It was, it was unbelievably tense, and I never thought I would feel that way about people playing music. Um, and you know, this is kind of more of a an obvious, uh, you know, device for suspense. Uh, you know, locked in a, uh, locked in a bunker after a post-apocalyptic attack. Um, but, uh. I feel like the mechanics that work on uh, largely the same. So I, I really felt that influence and it's just about a perfect little, you know, secluded tense thriller with about three people in it for four fifths of the film. And then, and, and then, and then aliens, and then aliens. <laughs> well, you know, it, yeah. it actually starts almost jumping the shark. I don't want to say, I don't want to, I don't want to come right out with that. I, maybe I'll maybe I'll work into that. But uh, it, it's it starts going a little off the rails oh, even before the aliens show up. I think the turning point for me is yeah. when Michelle is uh, confronted by John Goodman for her plan to make a suit, uh, you know, like a hazmat suit with a homemade gas mask. Uh, and then she manages to escape him and runs into a room with like this vat of acid that John Goodman had revealed uh, in the scene before. And it was actually a pretty tense scene. I don't know. Maybe that was a little overboard. One of those overboard reactions you were talking about. Um, um, no, I thought that one was. I thought that one was effective. Yeah. I, I, no, it, yeah. I I, I, I can't uh, say good, really too good or too bad things about it. So whatever. But yeah. then Michelle has a great plan where she kicks down the the barrel of acid right onto John Goodman. He slips in it, falls face first. Like, it's gruesome. Mm-hmm. And then there's something that can happen from here. 
she can make an escape and you know just as intense as that's going to be because like the acid caught fire um and you know then when she gets outside whatever happens happens but then john goodman gets up like a crazed madman mm-hmm. having just been like basically drowning in perchloric acid uh-huh. And it becomes the most just like cheesy, almost horror movie esque, like stalking. He, he starts growling. He goes, <laughs> yeah, he starts growling, and there's even like knives stabbing through walls. Like that's yeah, I liked that actually. I, I get it. Vince. I get it. It, it. I thought that was. I actually thought that was pretty terrifying. No, it, <laughs> and and it was. And I'm not going to take anything away from it because of that. It's just so. One, it's starkly different, and two, it, it's just operating on that premise that's very unbelievable. It turns like John Goodman's Howard character into like a like a Michael Myers almost. Yeah, it does a bit. Um, I actually almost expected her to just be like, "Jesus, I thought she was dead." And he just goes half. <laughs> yeah, no, it that that one that's kind of what it started to. Get, the movie started to get away from me, um, and then it goes uh, even further. Just goes batshit. Um, she escapes the she escapes the bunker, um, only to find actually. Well, it's kind of a what I do like about after she gets out of the bunker is this kind of slow reveal of what's happening. That was um, fucking awesome. It was really cool. She she gets out. Um, and it's just deserted from out. She, she, first of all, I mean, she still thinks the air is poison. She's completely, you know, secured by her hazmat suit. And, uh, you know, she, uh, she's trying to get to a car and she actually rips a hole in the leg of the suit and she starts flipping out, um, you know, puts tape over it. And it's actually kind of a moment of suspense because you as an audience member don't actually know for sure that the air is okay, which it is. Um, although you can kind of, I mean, guess by the fact that there's still copious amounts of plant life around there. Yeah. Um, but then she looks overhead and sees a formation of birds flying just fine, like everything's normal. And she kind of slowly – it slowly dawns on her, this air is probably not actually poison. Um, after, by the way, it's not just blind faith. She had actually seen somebody who she believes was exp- – it was exposed to something and she thought it was the air. Um, and that convinced her that it was actually poisonous. Um, and so she takes off her mask everything's fine she can breathe and for a moment you're just completely disoriented because everything's okay uh you don't know what was wrong with the woman earlier who was clearly succumbing to something um and there's that moment where you the one moment where you do kind of think okay john goodman was just completely insane and and Uh, actually the moment before that when right after she duct tapes over the hole there was a look on her face that she just like couldn't believe what she had just done it, it, it to me it maybe yeah. i'm reading too much into it but to me it, it it was her reflecting on her newfound paranoia that was sort of instilled in her by john goodman and that was like a horrifying yes. moment for her i, I thought I, that was fantastic yeah i agree can we I mean, like, just for a second seriously praise the hell out of mary elizabeth winsett's performance in this i i think i've literally only seen her in scott pilgrim versus the world uh and she was it was generally a pretty monotone performance. Not that it was bad. That was just not the biggest. Not didn't have the most range. Um, I I was so impressed by her <laughs> in the film. The fact that she could, you know, be believable as both someone who 
is essentially abducted. Um, but also, uh, toe the line perfectly between playing someone who is resourceful and making the most out of her situation, but also someone who's not inhumanly unfeeling and just badass and tough. And, you know, you know, she's a, feels very much like a real person. Um, so it's a, you know, a wonderful performance by her. I was really happy. She was to, to find how talented she was. I hope to see her in more things in the future. Um, but, uh, so she takes off her suit and, that she sees just this aircraft off in the distance, and it looks—I mean, it's—it's it's far enough off where it looks essentially familiar. It, mm-hmm. you would see that it—you it, you would think it's just a large government issue, like maybe something from the army or something—a large aircraft. And then it just gets closer, and you see appendages on it, <laughs> <laughs> and you kind of realize what's going on very, very slowly. And it dawns on both you and the character at the same time. And it's, it's a slow reveal that is both disorienting and just actually kind of quiet. And I, I, I really fucking love that. It, yeah, it was kind of a, I, I did have a bit of a Cloverfield moment where, I see what it actually is. It's an alien spacecraft, and there are, in fact, space worms, which was alluded to in the movie. <laughs> Have you heard his theory about space worms? John Goodman's crackpot theories. Um, and on the one hand, I was admiring the reveal. Um, on the other hand, I'm just like, this is just getting kind of dumb. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it gets kind of dumber. <laughs> it gets kind of dumber. Um, and Yeah. At the end of the day, like it, and I'm, we don't, we're not exaggerating when it gets dumb, and hopefully you've seen it at this point. But you know, she like sets off a car alarm and turns it off to uh, avoid the prying ears and nose of this like worm dog uh, that's trying to hunt her down. Um, mm-hmm. And then she traps herself in in a truck that gets carried up by a ship, and luckily there's. The ingredients for a movie Molotov, which actually isn't how you make a real Molotov. By yeah, the, no, I, um, that's how just every single film thinks that you do it, and that immediately blows up any alien space. I, well, I swear to God, they did the same thing. I swear God, they did the same thing in War of the Worlds. That's that's the thing too. Like she makes this Molotov as this ship is like slowly planning to eat the truck. It seems. Um, and she's able to throw the Molotov into the like ship's opening and closing mouth. I was, I was actually, I kind of had flashbacks to Legend of Zelda at that moment. I'm just like, you must throw the weapon and the boss when its weak spot is exposed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and then I expected that to just like hurt it a little, but it goes full like fucking Independence Day, blows oh, up the yeah. entire ship. I'm like, really? Yep, and it's all like she's she's fine. It's all it's dead, and she's okay. Yeah, and my, my as I said, my problem with it is not really how sort of dumb it is, although that is starkly different. Um, my at the end of the day, my main concern with the end is that before all of this, I felt like I saw a movie that was really about something. 
Like, I had a really nice takeaway. It was about, like, isolation and paranoia. And actually a theme that I hadn't brought up before now, I just want to mention really quick while it's still relevant. Um, It even had some parables of, like, religious faith a bit. Oh, yeah. Um, Which, particularly earlier in the film, just, just kind of... You know, blind faith versus you know something you know, needing evidence for something. I thought that it, it, playing to that even was kind of interesting, um, and and actually spoke volumes about the different characters involved. Um, it was just it was chock full of meaning. The the whole the, the entire setup was just had a million different ways you can interpret it. Yeah, and then the my takeaway from the from the last part and almost consequentially the whole movie because of it is woman becomes badass and that's and that's yeah. what the story is about and I, that's why i take such issue with it so i would i would give it a little more forget i would be a little more forgiving toward the ending than that just because there's a very clear arc in uh michelle's character where and she was talking about this earlier with uh with emmett although it's kind of one of those scenes where like you know it's going to be reincorporated because there's no real reason for them to bring it up. Yeah. Um, uh, but basically telling this story about, uh, you know, this girl who was being in, in a, I think a hardware store one day she saw being pulled along by her father and, you know, he's, you know, pulling her arm too hard. He's hurting her. Uh, and then she makes him stumble and he begins to act violently toward her and she wants to step in and intervene and stop it. Um, but she just has this compulsion where when things get hard or stressful, she runs away from it. Um, and this is also, you know, reinforced by the opening of the film when she's running away from her fiance due to some sort of unseen fight that they had. Um, and then she also, and, you know, shared a moment with John Gallagher Jr. Emmett, you know, when he said I could have, yeah. I had a full ride scholarship to run track and I just couldn't bring myself to do it. So I never went. Right. Um, which, you know, as forced as that scene is, it's, uh, you know, to me, that's a, a relatable and, you know, believable enough character, you know, character flaw. And it's simple. And it's, you know, even, even just overcoming that small flaw is kind of satisfying as an arc. And the end of the film does have that, worked into it where she's driving along and she hears a radio broadcast uh, about, you know, two locations. One's a safe haven for people who are still alive. The other is a more dangerous battle zone, but they need people with ex- with a particular kind of experience that Michelle has. I think it's medical experience. Combat um, and medical. Or combat and medical, which actually, does she have either? Well, she, that's, the, that's the thing, too. It's like, well, did. I guess you, like, fought some aliens, and I guess you stitched I, I, up John Goodman's she head. stitched up but... John Goodman, but she had made it clear she didn't have any medical experience before that. <laughs> I know. Um, so she doesn't really have either of those things. She's like, I'm more whatever. than qualified now. <laughs> but whatever. Um, uh, and tells those people to go to, I believe, Houston. Uh, yep. And there's even a kind of a heavy – right as they say that, too, there's a sign right in front of her that has both cities labeled on it. Of course, they're going off in two different directions. <laughs> so if you get hammered in anymore, there you go. Um, but of course, she surmounts her earlier character flaw and goes toward the more dangerous area where she's going to be of more help. So, And of course, the last shot of the film is her driving toward Houston uh, with an even larger spacecraft than the one she already took down. 
also approaching the same area, and it's a pretty cool shot, I will say. Yeah. And just remember, like they were lingering on it for a long time. I'm like, wait, is this is this the last shot? No way! And it just cuts to black, and it's, it is in fact the last shot. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And I was, I was, I have to say that I mean, as dumb as this last part of the film is, uh, that that bit did work for me as a kind of a you know resolving of a character arc, albeit heavy-handed character arc, um, and as a just kind of a final exclamation, like just <laughs> just a final awesome image of this film that doesn't really have any closure in terms of plot, but just sums up, you know, just, just gives you this catharsis to end on. Um, I was fine with it. I texted you immediately afterward that it takes a bold movie to end on a shot like that, thinking that it was actually intended to be a cliffhanger for the inevitable sequel to 10 Cloverfield lane. Uh, until I realized that that might've actually not intended to be resolved. Uh, cause it really, you don't need to, um, you've, if you've seen any alien invasion movie ever, you know that what would follow would be the least interesting part. And also, kind of considering the fact that I, I legitimately think if they make another one of these films, it'll be kind of like this one was almost entirely unrelated to the film that came before. Um, and I actually think they made, like I said earlier in the podcast, I think they'll just kind of make it into an anthology film series, which would be really cool. I would actually love um, a Cloverfield anthology series. That would be awesome. Yeah, I would too. But, um, and I, I liked this film a lot more than the original Cloverfield. Um, I adored pretty much the entire you know other than certain heavy-handed bits i really enjoyed the entire bunker film which i consider almost a film within the film that takes up you know 80 percent of the runtime (laughs) yeah no i i agree there there was a point in in the car where i thought as ridiculous as the film there was being i thought they were just gonna own it and that that's sort of the problem i end up having is that in the end, I felt like they were taking themselves too seriously, uh, you know, with the end of the ending scene, um, you know, trying to be the completion of a character arc. You remember Cabin in the Woods, um, yeah. I'm sure. The end of Cabin in the Woods is, if you really want to watch Cabin in the Woods and haven't seen it, just stop listening for the next 10 seconds. But the end of Cabin in the Woods um, is that they fuck everything up and the world is going to end. And then they uh, light up a joint and <laughs> talk about how crazy it would be that there's giant evil gods. Um, and it's an, it's a really fitting ending for the movie that you just watched. So as ridiculous as the movie was getting, I thought they, <laughs> I thought as she was being like taken up into the truck, the purpose of introducing the alcohol bottle was just going to be that she was going to take a couple drinks of the alcohol bottle while the alien devoured her. Yep. And that to me, (laughs) that would have been better. That would have been better to me. I mean, she wouldn't really get the completion of the story arc. I mean, you you know, you didn't didn't really need it in the first place though. Yeah, that's the thing. That's why I feel like the movie was taking itself too seriously. I mean, you could also make the argument that she was just accepting her fate rather than running away from it. But still, the point is that, and even in a filmmaking thing, it would have been using what had been done the entire time, introducing a visual element, but doing so for sort of comedic, uh, this weird, like, lighthearted nihilism almost. Yeah, exactly. Instead of contrived Hollywood crap, which is what it was ultimately used for. Yeah, yeah. So 
and it's not that my disappointment is that it wasn't how I would have done it. It's just that it, it no, no. It, it's just that it didn't really own its ridiculousness, and that's just a way that I had thought it was going to do. No, I I will say this, and I will stand by it. This film, of course, J.J. Abrams didn't direct. He didn't direct the original Cloverfield either. It does not transcend the fundamental problem I have with a lot of his productions, which is that they are brilliant setup. And in this case, I would definitely say it. I'll say it transcends it in the sense that it's more than setup in this movie. Um, it's essentially the entire, the, you know, the crux of the action that I find pretty gripping. Uh, you know, it's it's fascinating stuff, great filmmaking. Um, but the ultimate punchline, the ultimate, you know, the the the, the mystery that you want to find the answer to, and that's why you bought a ticket and put your butt in the seat, is always a huge disappointment. Um, <laughs> and that that does not transcend here. It's they're not even like. I mean, I would love it if he can give a really cool, you know, if if he wants to make them aliens, great. I I don't care. Um, but do something cool or original or creative with it. So something that kind of, you know, is is fitting of what came before. And I honestly, it just kind of seems like they're on autopilot. The whole, the whole resolution, the whole climax. It's. It's like they didn't put any thought into it. It's just generic Hollywood alien. I can't really distinguish it from any other generic Hollywood alien. In fact, it kind of looked like one of the creatures from Peter Jackson's King Kong. Like, it's, <laughs> it was... Yeah, I would have loved to see any... I mean, really just any creativity in that regard. Because um, I think they just kind of were on autopilot for... You know, they're, they're space alien worms. And fuck it. You know, it yeah, yeah I, so... Our review, I guess, is not incredibly different than than other reviews that they're like, you know, we really like this movie until the ending bit. I feel like my feelings are always for different reasons than the uh, than what you're going to be hearing elsewhere. But I don't know. Judge that for yourself. Yeah, same with me. Um, there was one. Oh shit! There was one final point I wanted to bring up. Okay. But now I'm spacing on it. <laughs> Damn it. Uh, give me like two seconds. Okay. And if I don't think if I if I don't think of it, we'll move on. I just. And now we wait. Uh... Mm... Oh. Um. Okay. So one last thing, and this was kind of a. Um. It, it's not like a plot hole or anything. It's more of a kind of an up for your interpretation kind of thing that I didn't even really think about until after I left the film, but there's this weird, um, the, the, the piece of information that kind of sows the seed of doubt in, uh, uh, in Michelle's character that John Goodman is not really the good guy. He seems he is. This is after she's kind of been convinced that the air outside isn't breathable and that she does need to be in the bunker to survive. Um, she, so John Goodman shows her, a picture of who he says is his daughter, Megan, who he constantly brings up again, kind of a, kind of a contrivance, but mm-hmm. I'll go with it. Um, who he constantly brings up is clearly very distraught that she is no longer with him. Uh, he says that he's with her mother in Chicago. She has no reason to disbelieve him until she has to go, uh, fix the air filtration system. At which point she sees, uh, 
the word help scratched on the inside of a window facing out into the world that can be seen by other people, implying someone was being held hostage there, and uh, a bloody earring that was the same earring that the girl was wearing in the picture. So she takes and tells Emmett about it and shows him the picture, and Emmett says that the girl in the picture is not Megan, but another girl that he went to school with um, and who went missing, and no one knows what happened to her, implying, of course, that John Goodman kidnapped her Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, uh, murdered her, basically. Um, I have... it's And that's kind of what gets her to distrust Howard, so on a plot level, it is important, but... And they they probably left it open intentionally, but I do really wonder what happened with his daughter because it's clearly this important emotional uh, point for him. He keeps bringing her up, and it's never really resolved in the film. Uh, never really given more information about her beyond that. And uh, I I think I've, I I'd wager a guess that he was separated from his daughter, or maybe his daughter passed away or something, and he kidnapped this other girl to kind of supplement his daughter. Um, but that's kind of a stretch, and there's not really a whole lot to go off of. But it's kind of this big moment in the film, and I, I was wondering if you had any more sense of it than I did. Well, that's sort of the – I feel like that's the implication, and people are kind of making this a lot more – in my opinion, people are making this a lot more complicated than it has to be. Like, I've read I've read theories, well, you know, like there's, there's fan theories about it, uh, which is funny that there's fan theories about a movie that just came out regardless um, – well, I think the movie makes it more complicated than it needs to be. I mean, why can't it just be that he did have his daughter um, and he got overly possessive of her? She wanted to escape and he ultimately, you know, murdered her or something like that. I don't know. Um, why is it? There's this whole, I mean, just the whole idea of having this like, you know, oh, that's not Megan. That's this other girl who we're going to bring up one time and never again. And uh, that's not actually Megan. Who, what does Megan look like? I don't know. Um, you know, just all this kind of introducing a new person. It just seems like this kind of a mess and I was waiting, you know, it could, like it, it could have been more streamlined, but I was waiting for it to pay off because it seemed a bit more messy. Well, it's it true. They, that they introduced it makes it seem like you, they, we should have had a, uh, uh, a resolution, a more concrete resolution, but it's seriously, it could have just been what you said. And I see nothing that, uh, I know, against I, it. I, I know. You know, I've heard people say like, "Oh, maybe, uh, maybe Emmett killed her, and because uh, he was working on the bunker." And, you yeah, know. that's over. That's definitely overthinking it. I just, to me, it seems like there was more exposition there than was really necessary. Um, where there would be more to the story than what we were told in the film. I'm not. I'm not demanding that every loose thread in the film be tied up. It's just. No. It seemed like. It seemed like that one was particularly contrived, and I was kind of realizing afterward like wait i kind of thought we were going to get a resolution to that it, it's it's not that i need answers to everything in a film of course not but that's just show me like a body or something you know <laughs> well that just seemed like a setup like a like a deliberate setup that didn't have a resolution so yeah that was that was weird um no it, it you know i compared this to horror movies you see it all the time in slasher movies a character goes missing uh you know a side character and then the main character while running away or, or thinking that you know, they're in danger of sees the dead body of that missing character. And so then she's like, Oh, I'm really in trouble now. You know, it's like, right. Standard tropes like that. It's simple payoff, but it, it would be, it sounds like what a lot of people are desiring here. It didn't bother me I, I, too much. So I, I, it didn't bother me a lot. I had like, I told you, I didn't even think about it again until after I left the film, but it just seemed like a loose end to me. 
I don't know. Not not an ambiguous plot point. I have to make that clear, but an actual loose end. So that's why I kind of bring it up and was a little weirded out by it. But I mean, yeah, other, other than that, well, you know, I think we've made our points on the movie clear. I would definitely <laughs> recommend it. I would definitely recommend it. I'm not as head over heels as a lot of people seem to be about this. Um, I mean, the, the internet is kind of kind of in love with this film right now. Um, no, I have my reservations, and I think it's important to I have recognize my reservations where too. the film could get better, could improve. I, absolutely, but I will say it was a great time. It was a it was a it was a, a tense, wonderful time at the movies. I I so. Yeah, I do recommend it, uh, though uh, understanding that elements of it were forced and could have been much more tactful. Um, the the well-handled bits were particularly brilliant, and I um, – yeah, I get a good vibe from this filmmaker too. So that was – it's always exciting uh, seeing someone new to film who is seems to have a you know, real knack for it. So, yeah. And that's uh, a perfect segue to our next movie. Um, <laughs> that wasn't even intentional. No, it, I, I noticed that. But hey, uh, Monsters was, for the first time, director, uh, first time feature film director, um, and who had some talent on display. So, um, And I, I think it is definitely relevant. It's a definitely a similar type of movie, as I said, in dramatic structure and especially with its treatment of monsters and that it uses them mostly as a plot device and then opens up in an ending scene. So um, uh-huh. this also was probably the the coming out party for Scoot McNary, who has since – and we've mentioned him on the podcast before. Uh, uh, he's, he's sort our, of been in everything our, since then. He's our mascot. <laughs> I uh that's awesome. <laughs> I would I would argue that uh Monsters is one of the most influential films of all time because it is the screen debut of Scott McNary. I Scoot. believe. Scoot McNary. Oh my god. Uh also, sorry, no it's not. Not even close. He was in a ton of stuff before <laughs> Wow, I was very wrong. But it was the first thing I saw him in, and then he started popping up in fucking everything. No, this guy was in uh Twelve Years a Slave. Gone girl, girl. like not just like I don't know standard crap. (laughs) No, the rover. He was in Frank. He was in Killing Them Softly. Like every film after I saw Monsters with You for the first time, which was about two or three years ago, I would just every film I saw would have Scoop McNary in it. (laughs) It's like what the fuck? He was in Argo. Like (laughs) yeah, yeah. Uh, Oh, man, so, so that means he was in the Best Picture winners two years in a row. Yes, he was. Um, and he honestly could have been in... Well, actually, no, Gone Girl wasn't nominated for Best Picture, was it? No, no. Well, it, des- it sure deserved to be. Yeah. And could have been a four, could have been a third year in a row. Anyway. So um, when, I, when I showed Mike this movie, and I want to get this out of the way, because the movie also does get it out of the way very quickly, uh, the first thing you were apprehensive about was that there's just some grade school level writing in the very uh-huh. of this movie. <laughs> yeah, uh, so my introduction to Scoop McNary was also kind of a contentious one, because uh, literally the first thing I remember was him being on the phone, uh, uh, being watched by the, you know, the woman he's with um talking about what wait so that means that i have to it means i have to travel with my boss's daughter for three days and like 
And he's like, you can't do this. This is what I've been waiting for, this opportunity. Uh, It's already been established that he's a photographer and he's in the infected zone, which was done so, which was told about in like a pre-movie text, like a Star Wars type thing. But Yeah, yeah. and I think the fact that that was one of the first lines of dialogue I heard from him, and I, of course it's bad writing, but I also associate, like, I just, it, it, it seemed like very bad acting to me as well. Um, I just turned to James like, this is, I have to watch this guy for another hour and a half. Are you fucking kidding me? No, you, your exact words, you would like interrupted the movie vocally. You're like, exposition, exposition, exposition. Yep. <laughs> okay. That's exactly what it was. And it a hundred percent is. And you almost like can't forgive it. But, um, I mean, it, it, in that vacuum, it's really bad, but watching the rest of the movie, uh, you definitely understand a lot more of what the director's going for, and he's able to do so in a way. And it's also also just like impressive. And it's I would say the de- development and production of this film is impressive, and it's like desperation because they definitely described it as they weren't even sure if the movie was gonna you know actually make it to the big screen. Uh, they were just driving around Mexico trying to find places to shoot. Um, <laughs> You know, and, and it's amazing that they actually made something cohesive out of this. So, Monsters is, uh, before we get too far, it's about uh, a photographer who gets his big shot in the infected zone, which is a place where, well, just south of the United States border, it's about the northern chunk of Mexico, um, where aliens have come down from space, whatever planet, I don't know, uh, and sort of made their home, like, uh, getting in through the locals, but his plans of taking all the taking an award-winning photo um, sort of get a hitch when he has to escort the boss's daughter um, back to the United States. So yeah, I think the I think the one real asset of this film that is worth talking about, um, and that does in fact what relate to Cloverfield or Ten Cloverfield Lane, I guess, is that it takes a fantastical plot uh, and you, you you mentioned this before, it, it takes uh, a sort of fantastical genre involving aliens, giant monsters um, just, you know, the, the, the very stuff that B sci-fi is made out of um, and chooses to use it essentially as a setting uh, and a almost a petri dish for exploring uh, uh, character relationships and uh, making a human-driven movie, which is certainly a unique approach, and I think even just commendable as a as an experiment. Um, and of course, the question is whether it can actually transcend that, become more than just an experiment, and actually kind of uh, almost pioneer a new genre of of sci-fi B monster movie realism. Um, and this is another movie where I really hope you. Anyone listening will watch it before. Um, yeah. Because, yeah. one, we're going to talk about the ending because it's probably the most important part of the movie. Um, mm-hmm. it, it sort of reveals what the movie is about and was about the entire time. Um, and that you just should watch it. <laughs> it's yes. on Netflix right now, if you're wondering. And um, it's only about 90 minutes, I think. Probably, I don't even think it's that. It was a quick watch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sorry, I thought I'd interrupted you, so I was letting you finish. <laughs> oh, no, I mean, that was about it. I just kind of... 
you know, what would it, would it success? Of course, doing a, you know, doing something like that, committing to that would require making some compelling characters in the center of it. So the question is, were they successful? I have mixed feelings about that. It monsters. Um, neither of the two leads were particularly, you know, noteworthy to me. Um, yeah, it's funny. They, you know, in in ten, in ten Cloverfield Lane, both the characters have this moment where they talk about like this thing about their past or thing about yeah. their life that still affects them. Uh, and the that happens is, in monsters too. Okay, but I think that happens in about fifty percent of any Hollywood of all Hollywood movies ever made. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't and, say it's a glaring coincidence. And in Monsters, it's revealed that Scoop McNary had had a passion-filled relationship in his, like, six-year past that spawned a child who he is allowed to see but not allowed to actually be a father to. Um, you know, the the child doesn't even know that he's his father. So that's kind of a uh, – well, when he when he delivers it, you know, it's it's – a good line, but it also just comes off as this is my struggle. Um, and you know, maybe, maybe that was ended up in the moment, uh, kind of eye rolling and ham handed. Um, the rest of the film though, save for, save for an ending scene, they don't focus on it too much. Um, mm. and, and they're more just focused on these two characters growing relationship throughout this, long arduous trek you know from one place to another uh you know through through some turmoil through some just mundanity through some observing beautiful scenery which is a lot what the the film a lot yes well any of that that comes down to the practicality of it that they were just going around mexico saying can we film here i suppose i mean it's also (laughs) a very low budget monster movie which which is you're used to hearing that term, but I think the way it deploys that low budget is actually pretty interesting. Um, well, it, yeah, and Gareth Edwards actually got his start as a visual effects person, and he did the visual effects in this movie. And you can see it's low budget, but Gareth Edwards was so he he was so knowledgeable of his limitations that he does very smart things like the he always shrouds the aliens when he can so the visual effects don't come off as too like sci-fi channel esque um you know and i don't know it's simple touches that don't draw too much he uses he uses the jaws technique essentially the, I, sorry the what the jaws technique yes and not and not even in the way that something like uh like Jurassic World employed it where yeah you don't really get a good look at the monster but that's because they're not framing him right like it's just literally like he's right there it's just not Do you mean he, Godzilla? What no. Oh okay. You don't remember this complaint in Jurassic World? No, I do. I just I remembered it more prominently in in, in Godzilla. <laughs> yeah, that did happen in Godzilla. It didn't bug me quite as much cuz we ultimately got a pretty good look at it, but no, I remember Jurassic World they were, you know, the the ultimate tier. I don't remember its fucking name. I don't remember anything about that fucking movie. The Indominus Rex. Yeah, oh, you're I, you're right. Now yeah, I totally I, understand what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, the, it was like right there and they weren't showing it to you. You would see like a a leg and a, you know, a claw or something. Um and it was like, yeah, I think you're like in principle trying to do the jaws thing, but it's right fucking there. You're just <laughs> not framing it right. Yeah, <laughs> it's not what Spielberg did. 
No, and and that's and that's not what monsters is doing. No, that's not, yeah, that to its credit, it it's more tactful in how it employs that. Yeah, and you know, I don't. I, we'll, well, I'm sure we'll talk about other stuff retroactively, but uh, this conversation just leads naturally into the part where monsters really shows you the aliens. There's there's one point earlier where the truck gets attacked and there's kind of this intense moment where uh, everyone else around them is dying and they have to try to avoid detection. Um, and, and that is cool, but when the monsters really shine, when they're like on camera, is when they get to America to find that some of the turmoil has spilled over. Uh, but they're at a gas station and they've called in for help, so... Um, that's where they're holed up. Um, and then it turns out this very sinister, possible, possibly sinister moment, uh, where one of the large aliens, it's basically a giant octopus. I, I, you know, not to say they're amazingly designed, um, is revealed to be like on top of the, the gas station or like over it or behind it. Um, and it's, it starts out as this very tense, like, scary moment, but then he sort of walks over, and then another uh, giant octopus alien enters the frame, and then they're just sort of, like, touching each other. They're standing next to each they're, other, they're making they're noises, sh- they're lighting they're shooting up. light beams. They're, they're making out, basically. Yeah, they are. They are. <laughs> or, you know, something they're a mating. lot more they're inappropriate. Mating. R-rated. Um, we don't know, because... I don't know how giant it's octopus like, alien sex looks. It's like it's like the hair braid scene in Avatar. <laughs> yeah. Just kind of assume it's how alien sex works. Yes, and it's just it's amazing how the characters there and the actors there were able to convey such genuine awe um, in that moment, and that's really when when the monsters are revealed. When, and when Monsters, the movie, is revealed uh, to be something about much more than just monsters and more than just characters with sad pasts. Um, it's about love. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, put, put simply, yes, the, the movie's about love. But it's it's about the when these characters realize it's hinted at or, or early in the movie that the monsters are mostly benevolent you know they're they're going to be defensive when attacked but otherwise you just you know you leave them alone and then then these characters who have sort of been dancing around each other emotionally through the uh, first of the movie they're confronted with these two awe-inspiring beings uh, who have clearly gone through a lot and all they end up getting is a few brief moments of passion and connection and then they go on their separate ways. And that all of this is dawning on the characters completely, unlike the rest of the film, sans dialogue. It's all on their faces. And then because of that, it inspires them to have their first real emotional and physical connection, just a brief kiss before they're pulled away and the title card rolls up. And then a much more depressing realization uh, dawns on you, but that's, ancillary to this discussion so <laughs> and this scene also contained the point in which he realizes scoop mcnary was actually a good actor oh that's right yes he uh i i another time i turned to you in the film and i'm just like when did this guy just turn his fucking acting on to <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that's when he's sharing a conversation with his son, right? Yeah, and well, and when when stuff starts happening beyond the script, where which of course is, I don't really think ever necessarily gets better. I I mean, I think it just I think it lets its grip off of the characters a little bit mm-hmm. um, as the film goes on, and kind of lets the director be a director more and the actors act. Um, and when they're kind of left to their own devices, uh, it is pretty affecting how how potently these characters are communicated. Uh, it's when, when the entire exposition of the film is being laid out to you through a single phone, con- you know, through, through a single phone conversation. Uh, it actually is pretty touching and, and it kind of reinforcing the idea. It's not really so much the complexity of what you're expressing, but how you express it. Um, yeah. and yeah, I would actually say that that's what makes the, you know, the, the main portion of 10 Cloverfield Lane so effective and what I think ultimately makes monsters a cut above what I was prepared for and what I thought it was based off the first 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah. And the, yeah, I remember this is, I've mentioned this on podcast before after the aliens, like, you know, embrace and then walk away, you would turn to me for probably the third time in the movie and said, is that the climax of this movie? Cause if so, I'm very impressed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because it, it wasn't much, but it was like exactly what the movie needed. <laughs> yeah, and it's such a it's and, and uh, probably another reason why I wanted to talk about it in context with Ten Cloverfield Lane, just because we you know when the it's it's the contentious point happens or the the turning point happens when they reveal the aliens, and each each of these films handles that in a very different way. It's true, and actually, that would literally be the one regard in which I would actually uh, call Monsters a superior... I, I wouldn't call it a superior film overall, but uh, I think it, it how it handles its outlandish elements is actually probably uh, better handled in this movie than in uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane. Uh, just because, like, you, I mean, there's just that, like, strange seriousness about it where I'm supposed to, you know, accept these aliens as a, a, a logical, uh, you know, a logical continuation of everything that came before. Well, I mean, there's there's kind of this knowing line in Ten Cloverfield Lane where uh, Michelle's just like, oh, come on. But, like, <laughs> that's kind of an eye-rolling moment for me. At this it, it was, yeah. I'm like, okay, look, you can have your characters reference the absurdity of something in a movie, but that doesn't then excuse you. That doesn't make you the most, that doesn't make you self-aware. You know, maybe it does, but it's kind of lazy, you know? Well, that's what I was saying, like, own your obscurity. Don't just say, like, yeah, absurdity. Don't just say, oh, like, yeah, yeah own, I'm absurd, yeah. but whatever. Yeah, I'm absurd, but whatever. Now let's go play this out the cookie-cutter Hollywood way that every single other movie. Like, that, it was just disappointing because it was so, it, it's not even just that J.J. Abrams movies don't impress me with what they, you know, with, with the final reveals. It's that when when they have the final reveal, everything after that is so cookie cutter. It's so Hollywood. It's so normalized. Whereas with Monsters, that that last reveal actually, which was the climax of the film, uh, actually kind of ripened everything that came before it. It made it improved upon the entire setup for me, at least. And it um, actually contains with it, it contains within it. The, probably the, one of the most impressive directorial aspects of the movie, and that's that they put with the generic climax at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, exactly. and that's the depressing realization I talked about. Because at the beginning of the movie, you see you see this truck rolling up from their perspective. You know, they're like da 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 da. They you know they have a soldier like singing that, um, and then they encounter a monster, 
above a gas station, but you don't really realize it. And you also don't really realize that the two characters, like, well, you know, one character screaming, dragging a woman around is the characters you're about to be introduced to. Um, yep. And then the title card drops just after one of the monsters is shot with some devastating explosive. Uh so it's a depressing realization at the end of the movie when you realize, because it's actually tied together with a truck driving and then someone going dun 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 uh, When you realize that everything they went through, the characters probably died. Yeah, they probably died. I, But it's, yeah, it, but it's brilliant to make you have to remember that and then just leave you with that thought. Like, you never get that association. You never see that carnage associated with these characters. You have to retroactively apply it. And something yeah, something about that makes it just five times as powerful as it is. Well, and that's the thing, too. You think about, think about this movie if it hadn't done that. If Gareth Edwards had decided, no, I want the action-packed, you know, quote-unquote, uh, to be the ending of the movie, it would have been so much worse because it would have changed what the movie was about. And that's one of my complaints about 10 Cloverfield Lane is that I felt like I watched two different movies. Whereas in Monsters, it, the ending by lopping off that first, lopping off that end part and putting it at the beginning as a setup, uh, it, it really gave a focused direction to the movie. It's true, but you also have to admit that the two films are doing very different things uh, in regards to... I mean, one film very much had its its uh, its claws in suspense, whereas the other I one... I do, yeah. Whereas the I other one that. was... Yeah, the other one was very much about making you understand the world. I mean, you would know the world you were inhabiting. It's kind of a new idea, but you understand the world you're inhabiting, and you kind of want to see... It's it's the opposite. You almost, and then you want to see like realistic situations play out within that world. Um, so they're almost polar opposites in that regard. But uh, I will agree with you that the way that they pull off, they're able to pull off this. I mean, they they come up with all their uncanniness and their ridiculousness up front, and they move beyond it. Whereas, yeah, it's it's. It just, it honestly takes the edge, in Cloverfield Lane, it takes the edge off everything that came before. Um, yeah, and... it feels more like a, a devolution into that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with you about the, the comment about two films. The saving grace for me is that the second film is about 15 minutes long, and the first film is, I think, about an hour and a half. So. Yeah, no, and that's true. <laughs> Looked at in a vacuum, it's probably one of the most impressive movies I've seen all year, and I've seen some good movies this year, so... I, I mean, I think we're pretty... We're on a pretty good streak. I don't think... I mean, I haven't seen a film this year that I would just out and out and not recommend. Um... Well, you didn't see Zoolander 2, so... Of course I didn't. Why the <laughs> fuck would I see Zoolander? No one saw Zoolander 2, didn't it bomb? I think it bombed, too. Yeah. yeah. I only it... saw it because it was a double feature to drive in with Deadpool. And yeah. Deadpool played second, thank the Lord. Oh. Uh, so so, you, so to... you kind of end with a good taste in your mouth. Right? Yeah, exactly. I didn't have to watch Deadpool, get all happy, and then finish with Zoolander 2. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> But anyways, yeah, monsters. That's I think that's my forgotten favorite segment. I, um, before we wrap up, I do want to say one thing about monsters, and this is actually what I was going to say before, and was kind of oh, speaking okay. on it. Um, this isn't really about anything analytical of the movie, so it's not you know I, I I'm not pull, bringing anything back. Okay. You know, conversations, analytical conversations, probably over. But um, because you had texted me before I saw Ten Cloverfield Lane that hey instead of doing the original Cloverfield we should do Monsters as our third segment film, and I'm like mm, okay I you know seen it 
you know, with you those, those years ago, um, you know, it'll be interesting to revisit, but I didn't know why you were saying, but I'm like, you know, why are you doing that? Or, or you asked me if I had seen the film yet. And I said, no. And you made it clear. It'll be more obvious after you see the movie, why this is a better film. And I, I saw, I don't think I, I said that, but isn't that what you said? I don't think, I think it was a be- I didn't think I said it was a better film. No. Well, no, it's a better film to review or to talk about in relation. Oh, okay. To sorry, you'd made it seem like I was saying no, 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 no. Sorry, no, no, no. Sorry, I, I meant to say um, that it was a more appropriate film to discuss mm-hmm. in relation to Ten Cloverfield Lane. So I'm like, hmm, okay, it sounds interesting. About five minutes into Ten Cloverfield Lane, there is a scene where, uh, uh, oh my god. Michelle uh, gets gas at a gas station and for just the briefest moment, I was just absolutely convinced that what was going to happen is that this was going to tie in with the gas station scene in monsters and that somehow this was going to actually be revealed to take place within the same universe as Gareth Edwards monsters. I don't know why I just, (laughs) For that moment, it looked like the same gas station. Yeah, and, actually, come to think of it, it did. <laughs> and for a second, I'm just like, wait, is this... The... What? <laughs> oh my god. Holy shit. And I thought, I thought this is what you were talking about. Um, in retrospect, that's ridiculous. I don't know. That would be the most random tie-in of all time. <laughs> but just that that brief moment, I was just so convinced it was going to take place in the same. And it turns out basically any kind of tie in. I'm, I'm a little disoriented with 10 Cloverfield Lane. Cause this is the, that's the second film I attempted to tie it into only to be completely frustrated uh, <laughs> because it essentially ties into nothing. It's its own standalone film. And I was completely wrong about it. Yep. Uh, that's uh, so that's the whole knot. Uh, that's tying the whole mess up in a knot. Uh, that's as, that's as close to a resolution as we're going to get in this monstrous episode. Yeah, I mean, I actually don't think it's too long. Oh, monstrous. <laughs> get it? I, <sighs> I No, uh, I was, it was good. It, it good reminded time. me of an Austin Powers line, I think from the, from the second one, um, where a Dr. Evil is talking to, I can't remember the the woman and she's like, I'm late. And he's like, no, you're right on time. (laughs) It's like, no, I'm late. (laughs) I I gotta watch, I gotta watch the original Austin powers. Yeah. Those are, those are good movies. I mean, they are actually, I think I, I think I remember liking all three of them, but I was also a child. I I don't remember liking gold member, but, (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm. Anyways, um, I, I liked everything at that point. So I no, and Austin Powers could too, like, positively inform these like farce spoof movies that are coming out. You know, it's it. Oh, I mean, I'd love to find an excuse to revisit it. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> basically, where you're spoofing a genre. See, I like the idea where you're spoofing a genre, and and it's coming out of knowing a lot about that genre, as opposed to understanding the three or four movies in that genre that have come out in the last five years that you. I saw the trailer for. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like the they're they're like the cabin in the woods of comedy movies, you know. Yeah, like yeah. cabin in the woods knows everything there is to know about horror movies. It it it's a complete love letter, and it also is just making fun of it at the same time. Um, and that's the same thing can be said about Austin Powers. So. Oh, and and one last tie-in, I had no idea that Drew Goddard wrote 
the original Cloverfield. Yes, that is one I of his so. first screenplay credits, if I if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I had absolutely no idea about that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, hey, you, you got to start somewhere, right? I guess so. Um, not a, not a terrible place to start. I have my problems with Cloverfield. Don't get me wrong, but that that is his first screenplay credit. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well. Yes, it's his first full well, screenplay well, credit. I well, guess he had done some television writing film. for a yeah. feature film. He worked. He, he started working with uh, with uh, Joss Whedon, uh, Buffy, uh, right? Buffy and Angel, and whatnot. Um, mm-hmm. And then came back to Joss Whedon for Cabin in the Woods. Cabin in the Woods, yeah. <laughs> and now he's Oscar nominated Drew Goddard. <laughs> yep, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, but he also he also wrote World War Z. So, yeah, okay, okay. Sorry. I don't think he was the only one in his defense. That was I mean, a screenplay pro- that changed hands like seven times, probably not, including from of... our much maligned Damon Lindelof. Oh my god, <laughs> you're right. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think that was kind of one of those movies that are yeah, that's in production hell for a long enough period of time, <laughs> where it just kind of doesn't even resemble what it was originally supposed to be by the time it's actually released. Mm-hmm. Everyone else has added their like bit to it until yeah, exactly. It's like a fruit cake. Everyone's got their own line, um, and there's about fifty different writers attached to it, and they're just like brilliant. It's the voice of a generation, literally. That yeah, well, uh, we talked about uh, what we're gonna do next week, um, and it's pretty like cookie cut out for us for a few weeks out at we least. Got, so got a, we got a while here. So next week uh, is of course our Jeff Nichols extravaganza. Uh, if you don't know who Jeff Nichols is, you should. You should. Um, I actually haven't seen Pick Shelter, but I have seen Mud, and I'm a oh, big fan of right. Mud with Matthew McConaughey, part of the reconnaissance. Mud's uh, great. Uh, Take Shelter, I think, is the best film by him that I've seen, although I, of course, haven't seen Midnight Special. Um, and Roger Ebert loved it, too. It was a major film in Ebert Fest, um, which was his film festival he held every year. Um, he, I guess it's also a great showcase for Michael Shannon. Absolutely, it is. It's still probably the role I most associate with him. Um, and Jessica Chastain's in it, so you know you already know it's going to be at least good. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, I, and just a lot of the images from the uh, Midnight Special trailer uh, do resemble scenes from Take Shelter. So I think, I, I'm not knowing much about Midnight Special and not wanting to until I see it, uh, I think it'll tie in uh, in a meaningful and interesting way. We'll have to see, but I look forward to talking about both those films next week. Um, and of course, the week after, which I thought was vacant, uh, you <laughs> brought to my attention that is the week that Batman v Superman is coming out. And also, we're going to try to fit it in My Big Fat Greek Wedding 2. Hey, man, if it's possible. I mean, we, I don't have a third segment planned for that week, so maybe we could just do two movies. Yeah, no, two movies. Like, And, and, and look, old times. we could cut My Big Fat Greek Wedding 2 if we want, but it turns out that... Uh, how the way I was to Pitch Perfect last year, we both are to My Big Fat Greek Wedding, the original one. Uh, it's delightful. And that's not to say that we think Batman v Superman is going to be anywhere near Mad Max. <laughs> no, God, no. No. But uh, I, this is maybe a chance to get... If, if My Big Fat Greek Wedding 2 isn't of interest to many of our listeners... Uh, it is a personal interest to us, so we may be working that in next week if we don't have a relevant third film to talk about, which I think 
I think I think that's great because with a film like this, it's kind of hard not to just get into franchise territory where we just discuss other films in the same franchise, and that gets kind of boring. Um, yeah. I mean, of course, we're going to be talking about it in terms of the Nolan trilogy and things like that, but I don't want that to dominate our conversation. If we can no, talk about I, it, I don't need, like... I, I'm actually fully intending to going in this. Uh, of course, I'll make a comparison here and there, but I, I do not want to judge this film, and in particular Ben Affleck as Batman, in the context of a post-Nolan world. And that's fair. A fair comparison. I think that they should be able to do their own Batman. Mm-hmm. And I, so... But but you know if, if point of comparison comes up that is warranted I'll we'll do it but we'll just have to see um, I'm I'm curious how that week's gonna go I'm I'm, I'm kind of interested um, and then the week after that uh, is one that I'm looking forward to but also a little uh, concerned about a bit uh, Richard Linklater one of my favorite directors is coming out with a new film uh, follow up to Boyhood. Uh, called Everybody Wants Some, which is actually a, considered a spiritual sequel to his second feature film, Days to Confuse, back in the early 90s. So I love that movie. I love Richard Linklater. The trailer looked like shit. Um, it really does not look good at all. It's just it looks, looks like... like dir- it, it looked like bad Animal House, you know, like just really bad Animal House. Just kind of a lazy derivative flick, which is not something you're used to seeing from Richard Linklater. So I hope it's just a bad trailer. Well, and you know what? Early reviews would seem to indicate that it was just a bad trailer. Uh, I hope they hold, uh, and I hope I enjoy this film because I I love Richard Linklater, and I want to see him continue to make great movies. Boy, I, I don't want to see him make a Tomorrowland, you know? God, I sure hope not. I mean, look, he's off a, he's on a great streak right now, though. Before Midnight... so His last three films were Bernie, which was, I think, one of my... like. It was it was my number one underrated film of I think 2012 that year it came out, mm-hmm. um, and it was it probably would have made my top ten honestly I, I love Bernie, um, and and not enough people have seen it. Um, his follow up to that the the next year was Midnight in Paris, which is, uh you know uh, belongs in his before trilogy, absolutely heart shatter heart shattering brilliant uh one of my favorite films of that year and of course his follow up to that was Boyhood which he had worked on for 12 years. Cost a huge international. Okay. Sorry, just you had said midnight in Paris. Did I seriously do that? Yeah, not before midnight. You said midnight in Paris. I was very Dear confused. God. Oh. <laughs> so before midnight is the film that he made after before Bernie. Midnight is the year he made after Bernie. Yes, it is the sequel to Before Sun Sunrise and Before Sunset. Before midnight being the third, as would kind of makes sense um holy shit wow midnight in paris you know it's because they both have the word midnight in it and then one of them um julie delpy is of course parisian so yes. i think that's how i got mixed up uh it doesn't even take place in paris it takes place in the greek peloponnese <laughs> the second film is in paris i that is third movie in the string <laughs> But then his third movie, The String, is Boyhood, which obviously caused a huge, you know, it was uh, one of the most critically acclaimed films of this decade so far. It was my favorite film of 2014. It was on the most critics list by far for 2014. Uh, it got 100% on Metacritic. It, I mean, I've never seen a claim for a film that uproarious. Um, and it's something that's, I think, going to stand the test of time and become a classic. I... I think Richard Linklater has been 
at the peak of his talents the last few years, and I hope he can keep it up with this movie that honestly looks underwhelming. Um, so <laughs> I, I really look forward to watching that. And maybe we, we can uh, also in that episode talk about the original Days to Confused and uh, compare contrast them. I think that would be... I think that would actually be good. It would be more than just a Cloverfield type thing. Well, yeah, so. yeah, of course. Because the, the thing about Days to Confused that's interesting is not just, you know, how it can realistically portray, you know, the the carelessness of a, you know, a generation, but also like, I mean, that's a, I think once you get past the, you know, the rock music and the, you know, kind of the, the, the funny and flamboyant scenes, it's actually a pretty sad movie. Um, there's, there's, there's a deep rooted melancholy with the characters and how they view their generation. Um, and that kind of was what made it more poignant to me. I think if, if he can do something like that with everybody wants some, um, or at least kind of give it that extra meaning, uh, and purpose to it without being heavy handed. Cause he does it in a very naturalistic way in days of confused. Um, I, you know, I think that'll be a real asset to the film. Um, and if it doesn't, that'll be a good point of contrast. Uh, so yeah, I look forward to that conversation as well. I think that's about as far as we've gone. Although at some point we do also want to talk about Terrence Malick. Well, I do at least, um, there, Terrence Malick has a new film this year. Finally, uh, called uh, Night of Cups, starring Christian Bale. Yeah, that's coming to the Pickford, uh, or the April, is supposedly. Yeah. So yes. I'll be able to watch it then, probably around the same time as everybody wants some. We'll just have to see how the week shake, shape yeah, up. I, maybe we just, if we don't have anything the week after, maybe we could just do it that week. It's kind of one of those films that it was technically released last year, um, and it's just kind of making its rounds now. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not really concrete when it comes out everywhere. So I feel like we can be a bit more lax with when we review it. Maybe we can just do it a week where there's nothing else occupying that space. Yeah. So, yeah. So so we got a, we got a good string of shows coming up, and we know we could prepare for them <laughs> instead of doing them off the cuff. Hopefully um, they'll actually make it to air. You know, that'd be – That would thing. be great. That would be great. Hopefully this one will actually make it to air. No, I'm watching it record, and though I have my reservations on how the quality is going to turn out with, you know, my microphone volume being weird, at least I know it's recording. I see it happening. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? If we have technical issues with this one, you know, at least it's still an episode. And just know, people listening, uh, we are James. I you know, stop saying we. I'm not doing shit. Um, <laughs> is currently actively looking for a solution. We should be all ready to go in the next week, two tops. Um, knocking on wood, knocking on wood. Uh, but we're trying, and we're aware of it. So, yep. James is James is trying. James but is I'm trying, also, but I'm also but I'm also aware of it. Yeah, I just, just not, I'm just not doing anything. <laughs> well, it was a great show this week. It's going to be a great show next week. And as always, thank you for listening. <laughs>